turn back to Exodus chapter 4. And starting in verse 17, and we'll go from verse 17 through 23. Again, God is talking, You shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put into your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. What's fascinating here to me is we talk about the staff of God. In verse 17, it talks about, God says, take this staff. And now, in verse 20, we read, Ve'kechach Moshe et matah ha'elohim be'ado. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The staff of God. This is so critical to the events that are about to, about to happen. Now, this we already know, and we're going to be looking at this will return to the Matah HaHelohim, in other words, the staff of God later. On verse 18, we read that Moses returns to Jethro. Now, this makes sense in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Now, in Lesson 4 of this Exodus series, Part 1, Lesson 4 was in two parts, but in Part 1, we dealt with Reuel. Reuel in lesson four, so we're way back in Exodus chapter two, he quite definitely is Moses' father-in-law. No doubt about it. It is so clear in the Torah because he's the father of the seven girls and Moses marries Zipporah, one of those daughters. Now Jethro is possibly Retwell's son or it could be that he's a husband of one of Retwell's daughters. We don't know. The word that's used for father-in-law and is translated only as father-in-law is Choten. Choten, the Strong's number is H2860. And when you actually look at, you might say, academic lexicons, not your... Not a concordance, not just a simple abbreviated Hebrew dictionary. The word choten means a relative by marriage. Father-in-law, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law. So the very words of God, definitely. Reuel is the father of Moses' wife. He is the father-in-law. Exodus chapter 2 verse 18 states it. 
Yitro, which is Jethro in Hebrew, is not. Now, back in chapter 2, we never hear from Retwell again. Oh, we hear it, we see his name occasionally, but here, Retwell actually spoke. I mean, it, it, we, Exodus 2, he's alive. We don't see that anymore. He only appears live in chapter 2. So, it could be that maybe he died. And maybe Jethro is his firstborn son. Now, some people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Torah says that Retwell had seven daughters. Right. But in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, it says quite clearly in the Torah that Retwell had a son, and his name was Hobab. In your Bible, it says Hobab. In Hebrew, it's Chovav. Yes, he had seven daughters. The Bible doesn't say that he had no sons. So, and we find out that he did have a son, Hovav. He could have had other sons. Perhaps Jethro, okay, is Retuel's son, possibly his firstborn. Now it's interesting because Moses marries into the family of Retuel. You would call it the Beit Ab, the house of the father. He's the father of this household. Jethro could be his firstborn son or could be a husband of one of the other daughters. One of the things that's amazing, though, then, is here Moses is working for Jethro, taking care of his flocks. This would make sense, definitely, if Jethro was the firstborn of Retwell because he would have inherited a double portion and he would have many of the flocks of his father. He would take over the Beit Av. He'd be the man. So therefore, Moses, with good Middle ancient Middle Eastern etiquette, is respecting the head of the family. And to come back and say, just wanted to let you know I met God and I'm going back to Egypt. Here's your sheep. I'm not going to take them with me. Point is, in its historical context, when we take a look at these possibilities, things really make sense. Is Jethro Moses' brother-in-law? Perhaps. Did Retuel die? Maybe. But the scenario we just looked at, it's a, it's a realistic, it's a realistic scenario. It's better than what we get today that Retwell, Jethro, and Hovav are all the same guy. This is ridiculous. They all have different names. I, I just, I don't understand why we've missed this. With all of the, with all of the tools that we have to go back to the ancient Hebrew and to realize that Choken, Chochoten basically means somebody related by marriage. How could Hovav be Jethro and Jethro be Retuel and Retuel be Hovav? I mean, in Judges chapter 4, verse 11, we have the translation that Hovav is Moses' father-in-law. How can that be? This is a contradiction. And, and, and our translators don't take care of it. But if 
choten, that Hebrew word definitely means somebody related by marriage, yes, Hovav is a brother-in-law to Moses, not the father-in-law. Yet, that error is still in the Bible. It's not eliminated as they come out with new printings and so on. So at any rate, Moses returns to Yitro, Jethro. He's respectfully treating his family member, that perhaps even the head of the family now. But at a minimum, he's working for Jethro. He's tending his sheep. And he's got to return. He's got to return his flocks. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, we come up with a real interesting verse. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking, you, seeking your life are dead. Going to the JPS Torah Commentary by Nahum Sarna, Sarna, he has a comment on this verse, but the comment is actually in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, which relates to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, and Sarna mentions that here. It was established practice in Egypt for a new king, a new pharaoh, to celebrate his accession to the throne by granting amnesty to those guilty of crimes by releasing prisoners and by freeing slaves. A old, old hymn that has been found composed in honor of the accession of Ramses IV illustrates the custom. It records a happy day for Egypt when fugitives returned to their towns and when those in hiding emerged and those in prison were freed. This being so, the Israelites had good reason to expect that the change in regime would bring with it some amelioration of their condition. So indeed, a new pharaoh comes along. And perhaps the Israelites who were in bondage so will be freed now and it didn't happen because one pharaoh kept the practices of the other pharaoh. The son of the pharaoh kept the practices of his dad. So this is not to be, hence the stress on the intensified misery of the enslaved Israelites. Moses, however, did benefit from the amnesty personally, as Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 confirms. And so indeed... Pharaoh is dead. The Pharaoh, that was the Pharaoh when Moses murdered the Egyptian. But this reminds us of something very interesting. The Hebrews knew about this practice. They were in Egypt for 400 years or more. 430 years if we start counting from the day that Jacob returned with his sons to Egypt, or not returned, but entered. This reminds us, and we're going to be studying this later, that when the high priest dies, 
all those who've committed unintentional murder are free. What's really fascinating is unintentional murder, just them. It's not like Egypt. The high priest dies in all unintentional third-degree murder. Not like Egypt. Now, the Hebrews understood this. They lived it. And God takes part of that practice. It's like a polemic. New king in Egypt and everybody's freed. And God said, no, not everybody. Justice needs to be served. But those who committed unintentional murder, third degree murder, that would be by our standards, and are still in the sanctuary cities, the six sanctuary cities, which we'll take a look at again. They are freed. It's a matter of justice that not everybody is freed. So as we take a look at this, God has all things worked out perfectly. He chose Moses. All of his objections are completely destroyed by God. On top of that, he has Aaron coming. Moses doesn't even know it. And we remember what Paul had to say in Romans 8.28 where he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is simply commenting on the only Bible that they had when Paul wrote Romans, which is about 57 AD. Bible historians will say it's probably about 57 AD. All they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And Paul is commenting on the only Bible they had. Moses loved Yahweh. And he was called for a special purpose. But so too for you and me. We live in difficult days, days of chaos, days of evil, days of violence, rioting. And we're in the midst of this. We didn't choose Jesus, he chose us. And just like it says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want when you study the Hebrew and the conceptual meaning and you understand the picture that God is creating in Psalm 23 we have everything we need to do that which God has put before us like Moses Moses didn't get a Cadillac he didn't get an airplane he didn't get riches he stayed a shepherd he became the first redeemer of Israel we're to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth we are to be his disciples we're to be just like Jesus to teach like him remember Paul what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 1 be like me for I'm like him we have a special purpose to be involved together as community to go out at least two by two 
to make and develop disciples. We're not to build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We're to make disciples. This is an attribute of God. He orders things perfectly for us who love him and are called according to his purposes. Just like he did for Moses, just like he did for Jesus, and just like Paul teaches in Romans 8.28. Returning to Exodus chapter 4, we go to verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall pay, say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. My son, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So in verse 20, we come back again to the fact that Moses is inspired by God to call his staff that Moses carried, the staff of God. I'm going to come back to this later in future lessons. But I remember in Psalm 23, and I think you'll remember as well, that if we walk into the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with us, your rod and your staff comfort us. So as we're resounded by so as we're surrounded by danger and death and evil, God is our shepherd. And it's the staff of God. Because we're saying we're in the midst of all of this evil and danger these very difficult circumstances. And God is our shepherd, and he has a staff and a rod. Staff of God. I just wonder if David had Moses' a staff in mind when he wrote this. An interesting connection. And they seem to be related what the staff of God did for Moses and Israel is the staff that he carries for us each and every day. <laughs> it just seems to be a very interesting connection. In verse 21, we come to the fact <clears throat> God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now in Hebrew... There are three words I want to bring up. Chazach. Strong's number is H2388, which means to make strong or courageous. <clears throat> or um, hard, unbendable. It has a positive and a negative connotation. All Hebrew words have a positive and negative connotation. Kavod which is H3513, means heavy, weighty, hard. 
Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. God's kavod, his heaviness, his weightiness in a positive sense. God is just so awesome. Not heavy in a negative sense, but heavy in a positive sense. And then kasha, H7185, to be fierce, severe, to be difficult, to be hard. But that can take a positive and negative approach. To be fierce and severe. In terms of evildoers and the evil around us. Now these are three unique separate Hebrew words and they're all translated into the English as harden. Three separate. On top of that, heart. We think what, you know, change, he's going to harden his heart, change his emotions, change his feelings. No, it's not what we think. When we go to heart, I'm going to go to the go to the JPS Torah commentary on verse 21. And as Nahum Sarno would say, heart basically is an essential attribute of man's character. Half are attributed to vine causality. In the biblical conception, the psychological faculties are considered to be concentrated in the heart. The psychological, the mental faculties. Regarded as the seat of the intellectual, moral, and spiritual life of the individual, this organ is the, detri uh, uh, the detriment of behavior. In other words, it's our mental abilities, our mind, our reason, our intellect. So here we have three separate Hebrew words that are all translated into one English word. And with regards to heart, no one seems to give us the understanding that heart meant the mental capabilities of an individual aligned. Why did the translators do this? How can you intellectually make such a huge error? Everything's there before us. Now, in a future lesson, we're going to be studying the statement of God in detail. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. The question is B, questions are, what Hebrew word is behind the English word harden when we're looking at those specific verses? That's going to be a determining factor as to what the verses mean. On top of that, does God take free will away from Pharaoh? Does God treat us as robots? In other words, is God saying, um, guys, everybody's a Calvinist. Therefore, everything is predestined and you have, have no free will. That doesn't make any sense. When the Torah gives choices, the Torah gives choices. It's man who has put the opinion, the view, the meaning upon God's word that God didn't mean that Adam had choices or Eve had choices about which treaty. No, they didn't. They were forced to do it. They were robots.
We're going to get to this later in detail. Finally, we get to chapter 4, verse 22. Israel is my son and my firstborn. Wow. And one of the things is, is, if, is Israel's my son, my firstborn, does that imply he has others? We recall in Genesis 12, verse 3, if you've been following along the Torah study in Genesis, all families of the earth will be blessed. In actuality, in Lesson 25 of the Gospel According to Moses in Genesis, you can go there, we go into the detail behind this, the Hebrew has an alternative way that it can be understood. All families of the earth will be grafted in through Abraham. And that means Jew and Gentile together will be one. John 10, 16. In John 10, 16... We read Jesus saying, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. So in other words, he's basically having two sheepfolds. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Go to Ezekiel 34. We're not going to read it. Fascinating, unbelievable chapter to read. As there are many other verses, and that is, the first flock of God, the first chosen flock, is Israel. And what's Jesus helping us with? That there's a second flock. And that we're going to become one with the chosen flock. And Paul says that Genesis 12, 3, that through Abraham, through his seed, all families of the earth will be grafted in and in Galatians 3.8, Paul says this is the gospel. God gave the gospel to Abraham. All families of the earth will be grafted in. It's a direct connection. Matter of fact, Paul quotes the verse. And then amazingly, in Galatians 3.29, those who are true disciples of Yeshua, true believers, are sons and daughters of Abraham. Wait a minute. The sons and daughters of Abraham became Israel, the firstborn son of the Lord. But as we're grafted in, we become sons and daughters of Abraham. Israel, the firstborn son, as the firstborn son, they have a huge, major responsibility. They're to stand with the Father and have one purpose, and that is to maintain and support all, all of those in the Beit Av. Beit Av in Hebrew is the house of the Father. Ray Vanderland, in his DVD, Israel's Mission, each DVD comes with, that doesn't come with, but you can buy separately, a, what he calls a discovery guide and it's a book that goes along with every DVD. I think it's a big mistake that if you're actually buying the buying the DVDs from Ray Vanderland, wherever you're getting them that you're not getting the discovery guide because just as an example 
let's consider the Beit Av. So I'm reading from his discovery guide of the DVD, Israel's Mission. Quoting Ray, Life in the ancient Middle East centered around the extended family or household, which was called the Father's House or the Beit Av in Hebrew. Now you can also check this out at the website thejewishvirtuallibrary.org and that's all one word, jewishvirtuallibrary.org I will have that link available in the session description of this podcast. jewishvirtuallibrary.org backslash family Such a family could comprise 30, 50, or more people representing several generations. The head of the family, known as the patriarch, his wife or wives, his younger brothers, unmarried children, and married sons with their families, a woman customarily joined the Beit Av of her husband. The patriarch controlled all family resources, using them to protect and care for each family member. In this setting, the Beit Av was the context through which each member was connected to the rest of society. If a member lost connection to the family due to oppression, captured by enemies, poverty, or bad choices, the patriarch was responsible to restore the marginalized member to the family. Anyone who found himself or herself without the Beit Hav was in serious trouble. So the firstborn son is working with the father to maintain the Beit Hav and help the father provide for every family member for all. Now we read about Yeshua, the only begotten Son of the Father. And we remember, and Jesus said, in my Father's house, in his Beit Av, not, not many mansions, that is such a horrible translation from the King James, there are many rooms. It's an insula, an ancient multi- multi-family household. It's the father and all his sons with their wives and their children would live together in one household with separate rooms. In the Beit Av of the Lord, there are many rooms and Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Our room's in the Beit Av. Israel is the only firstborn. From Abraham comes Israel. And there are other sons, perhaps us, created all of us. God has his Beit Av. And Messiah Jesus, he's the only begotten son of the Father. There is a great article from Jews for Jesus on Isaiah 53. We read parts of Isaiah 53, which is on the suffering servant. And they have a chart in there, and I put the chart in the notes and the chart shows that when we take a look at the concept of Israel as God's servant and we take a look at Yeshua as God's servant and we take a look at the different things that happen to Israel as a servant they happen to Jesus and all of a sudden we have this melding Israel as God's servant is a picture of Messiah as God's servant 
Messiah cannot be separated from Israel, and Israel cannot be separated from Messiah. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Then he tells us as disciples, we're the light of the world because we're supposed to be like him, and we're to bring Jesus to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6, it says, Israel, my servant, is a light to the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. All of this combined. So amazing. So as Yeshua taught us, there are two flocks, and we're grafted in to the Beit Av. Israel and the rest of us. And we become one flock. We become one flat family with one shepherd. So I'll see you in the next lesson, lesson 14. Shalom. Thank you.